This episode is sponsored by PumaPay. Can you regulate this space and how should you do it? You need to like break it into three pieces. Do you regulate software development? And the answer is like almost everybody in the world is going to say, no, we're not going to regulate mm-hmm. software development. Then you get to the question of, do we regulate deployment of software? There's like an affirmative action that needs to be taken. Do you regulate that? And then the third part is, okay, now you have software that's out there. How do you regulate it? And what I would say is that right now, what everyone is doing is trying to regulate existing software. And frankly, it's impossible to regulate a piece of automated software that lives on Ethereum unless you plan on taking down Ethereum. Unless Congress acts in a way that materially changes laws, regulators are always going to be catching up trying to turn off fires that, frankly, they can't actually fully turn off. The regulations are written for people or persons, and persons are natural persons or some form of entity. You do not have somebody who falls under the definition of persons. I think it's very hard to then figure out how to apply those regulations. And you know, I think it's up for debate whether those regulations should apply at all. But to go back to this benefits of DeFi, the way the software and blockchain in general has developed, it does meet a lot of the purposes of what the regulations are trying to accomplish. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. Today we dive into one of cryptocurrency's most exciting fields, decentralized finance, better known as DeFi. There's a wonderful Wild West aspect to this sector. The pace of innovation is intense. In many respects, that's an outcome of the DeFi ecosystem's decentralized structure. Without any centralized parties involved, innovation can happen permissionlessly. What do I mean by that? Well, developers don't need to ask someone for permission to build on or integrate with one of the many different trading, lending, or market-making protocols that are being spun up within this new world. Armed with these new tools, this innovative community has its sights on an ambitious, some might say audacious goal, a brand new financial system, one in which the prices of assets, the interest rates for loans, and the access to payments, credit, and insurance is open to all, without gatekeepers. That holds the promise of a more level playing field and for the prospect of reducing bureaucracy and lowering the barriers to bringing new financial products to market. It also presents real challenges. The existing centralized world of banking and finance is complex with multiple specialized actors making markets and providing services to a wide array of investors and participants. Replicating all those functions and building them within a decentralized model was never going to be easy. We've already seen some of the stress in the system. The sheer volume of transactions running through the DeFi universe has created congestion, raising the cost of processing those transactions. This is manifested in something known as gas fees, primarily on Ethereum, the dominant blockchain for DeFi. The good news is the DeFi community, fueled by the power of permissionless innovation, 
and a mindset that sees every problem as an opportunity is already working hard to resolve the challenge, which is why one of the things we'll talk about in this episode is the concept of layer two, a model that seeks to alleviate that congestion, lower the gas fees, and make the cost of transacting more affordable for all. DeFi is going layer two. Another question lies in the realm of regulation. Until recently, DeFi was more or less under the radar, but regulators at the SEC, the CFTC, and elsewhere are no longer ignorant of it. It doesn't mean they've figured out how or even whether they should regulate a system that, by design, doesn't involve the kind of custodians and other entities that are the usual target of regulation. It does mean the DeFi community needs to figure out, as it continues to grow, how to position itself vis-a-vis Washington and other political centers. So to discuss that and other issues, we have two DeFi insiders on deck today. We're joined by Rebecca Rettig, General Counsel of Aave, and Mark Boyron, General Counsel at Decentralized Exchange, DYDX. Sheila, that means we have three lawyers and one journalist in the room today. Should I be nervous? Well, as we always say, you know, we're lawyers, but not your lawyer, Michael. I'm not sure if that's better or worse in a particular instance, but I think you could expect a level of precision in our conversation going forward. I'm really excited to get started with it. You had to start with a disclaimer, didn't you? I mean, once a lawyer, always a lawyer. <laughs> it does never go away. Okay. But seriously, I'm, I'm actually really looking forward to this. DeFi is just one of those sectors that's just, I don't know, for me, it's rekindled my interest in crypto, right? There's this energy and inventiveness in this space that's quite infectious. And it reminds me of the early days of Bitcoin. There's also this like this whole new language. People talk about composability and degens and yield farming. I don't know whether our lawyer guests are going to be able to answer the question of what those words actually mean for our audience, but... <laughs> that's true. Meme heavy, you got to do meme translation at all times, right? And what do the memes mean for kind of how the space is developing too? So why don't we bring them in? All right, yeah, I think we heard from Rebecca anyway. And then Mark, the two of you, very nice to meet you. Again, because this is something of a complicated space, we're going to start the basics. We're going to build this as a building block. Rebecca, you first. Aave is one of the better known protocols, but we just had a conversation before we actually started out this where I was going to introduce you as the general counsel of Aave, a decentralized liquidity protocol. And of course, you made the very good point that you cannot be a general counsel of a decentralized protocol. So what is the difference between Aave the company and Aave the protocol? Just start with that, if you don't mind, to give us a sense of what we mean by that distinction. Sure. And I think it's a very important distinction for everybody who's building in this space. So I'm general counsel of the Aave companies. It's a group of software development companies headquartered in Europe. We develop blockchain-based software. We developed the Aave protocol, which is, as you said, an open-source, non-custodial, decentralized liquidity protocol that allows you to supply and borrow certain crypto assets and then earn interest on those assets. But we are also developing all sorts of different, and some disclosed, some not yet disclosed, new products separate and apart from the Aave protocol. The Aave protocol now, as I said before, is decentralized which means it's run by governance. The admin keys to the protocol have been turned over to the Aave community. And the only way that the protocol can be changed or amended or anything like that is through a proposal made by a community member and then a subsequent vote on that proposal, which is then favorable and implemented. And neither I nor other developers or other Aave employees have complete control of the protocol, anything that happens there needs to be approved and voted in by governance. Okay, so you just described the structure of the organization and, and your role, the other roles, a little bit of insights into what this protocol does. But like, 
again, break it down for the average person. What does it mean to have a liquidity profile? It's lending and borrowing going on. Why is that a unique thing compared to, say, a bank or, or any other participant in the centralized financial world? Yeah, I mean, this goes for everything in DeFi, and it's what we were talking about in terms of being decentralized, but you don't have these centralized third-party intermediaries in between any of the transactions that are occurring on these DeFi protocols. It is literally just smart contracts that execute the transactions. And so they happen automatically and without subjectivity or approval by any individual or any individual acting on behalf of an institution, which really changes the landscape in terms of how these financial transactions work, because the regulations and the laws were all written with an assumed third-party intermediary in between. And these are just peer-to-protocol transactions where an individual is interacting with a piece of software. And so, Mark, DYDX is a decentralized exchange, which is different, similar in the reality of being decentralized. I think we have now somewhat of a sense of what that means, but I'd be curious to know what that means in the context of exchanges. How does a decentralized exchange function if there is no central body basically creating the sheet, doing matchmaking? Like, How does any of that work? Yeah, you can actually think of decentralized exchanges in three different groups. One is the one that is most well-known, I think, right now in the decentralized exchange world, which is these automated market makers. And essentially what you can think of that is like a pool of assets, crypto assets that you're trading against. And you literally just have a pool sitting there, which is great for like long-tail assets where you'll always have instant liquidity. And really the question is just at what price are you trading? But then there's also you know, what you'll call kind of still like hybrid exchanges, which is actually where DYDX falls into it. And it's actually non-custodial in nature in that all transactions actually occur on-chain. And the important part being you always remain in control of your crypto assets, but there actually is a order book and matching engine in a centralized fashion that is actually matching those orders. And then all the transactions still happen in in a non-custodial fashion. And then the third group, which is the most difficult one that I don't think has really been achieved with success yet, is really where you have that same non-custodial exchange and you're actually having the the order book and matching engine completely on-chain. And that's something that for reasons that Michael referred to earlier when it comes to kind of layer two solutions and, and gas costs and transaction kind of speeds on layer one, is something that hasn't really been achieved, but is something that I expect us to see a lot more when we see kind of layer two solutions evolve. And so because basically there's software essentially uh, managing the order book, one of the things that can happen is perpetual swaps. And can you talk to us about what that means and why that's interesting or why it's important? Yeah. Perpetuals are a sort of synthetic product that essentially gives you exposure to the price of a certain asset. So for example, if you want to get exposure to the price of Bitcoin, without actually holding Bitcoin, you can do that through a perpetual product. What that also allows you to do is to get some leverage on that product. So you'll see some centralized exchanges that offer thing like 100x leverage, which is uh, very significant. And, you know, and then you'll see we, we offer, for example, 25x leverage, which is still pretty significant. And that too, leverage is kind of another issue that you deal with in the decentralized world in a different way than in the centralized world. Because when you have a decentralized exchange, you need to pull those prices through what is referred to as an oracle. You can think of an oracle as a way of looking at assets and prices or really any real world event 
that occurs outside of a blockchain and essentially brings that into a blockchain. So a decentralized exchange like DYDX, we look at outside prices and then we bring them on chain, whereas a centralized exchange is going to do that all in a centralized manner. And basically, that's why you see like discrepancies in the leverage that you can get on a perpetual from a decentralized exchange versus a centralized exchange, because a lot of that has to do with how often can you refresh those Oracle prices, for example, to make sure that you liquidate in a timely manner. So I want to get back to perpetuals a little bit, just because I think they're a classic case of a product that in some respects was not really possible until DeFi came along. And so these sorts of innovative ideas that people have dreamed up have been made possible by the, the reality of decentralized finance, the fact that you're trading with a protocol as opposed to a counterparty. But before we do, again, this is one of these episodes where we break everything down. We just started talking about layer two. You guys are the lawyers, but you're here to tell us a little bit about how these technical issues work as well, because it is one of the concerns people have had. That is that the layer one model, whereby every single transaction that's going through a smart contract is having to be processed inside the blockchain, which then means that the limited space on that blockchain becomes congested, which means that the cost of doing business and it rises. The gas fees, as I mentioned, were very high in the early days of DeFi. And everybody's now working feverishly to try to build a system that can scale to the massive number of transactions that we needed. Is things ever going to be viable for prime time for the, for the real world? Layer two is the way everybody seems to be going. You know, Aave, I understand, Rebecca is currently talking with Polygon about you know, how to uh, bring solutions to the Ethereum blockchain. Can you tell us? A little bit what layer two means and secondly, you know, where you guys are at with that and, and, and why it's important. Sure. So layer two blockchains are other software protocols that are built on top of an existing blockchain. And the sole purpose of the layer two is to be able to scale blockchain transaction capacity. So making it faster and giving the ability to have more transactions per second, uh, I guess is the right or per whatever block of time. And you're right, everybody is looking to integrate with layer two solutions because they do want to have this faster system, as you talked about, and be able to have more transactions in the same amount of time. We have what's called the Polygon market on Aave. So we've integrated with Polygon as a layer two solution already, and the market was launched maybe a month ago or so. It is currently up and running and one of the markets that has scaled the quickest of anything that's been launched since the protocol. So we're moving forward. But there are a number of different layer two solutions out there. They all are trying to offer different things in terms of speed and transaction volume and things like that. So you know, we are continuing to talk to other layer two solutions as well. Okay, Mark, what about you guys, DYDX? Uh, you know, clearly also layer two being a key part of what you're doing. What are you doing with it? And I suppose just more generally, how viable is this as a solution? Will we get to the scalability capacity that we need across the entire DeFi ecosystem as a result of this technology? Yeah, so DYDX's layer two protocol is built on top of, of Starkware. And Starkware is what you refer to as a, a roll-up. And essentially what that means and the way that we get all of the kind of increased transactions per second is essentially you could think of like eight-hour blocks during which transactions get what's effectively kind of rolled up. 
And every eight hours, they get kind of attached back onto the Ethereum blockchain. So really, you're only submitting a transaction on Ethereum every eight hours instead of you know, every second or millisecond or, or whatever that is. And what that does is that it allows us to do a few things that we couldn't do. So first of all, I referred to the increased leverage earlier. So what we can do on Starkware is that we can check Oracle prices more often and more often kind of liquidate any kind of accounts that need to be liquidated. You know, when you have a a layer one solution that isn't working very fast like Ethereum, there's significant risk that an account becomes under collateralized or significantly under collateralized before you're ever able to liquidate it because the Oracle prices would be refreshed every 15 minutes, for example, instead of, you know, every 10 seconds or, or less that you could do. The second one would be just cross margining. Right now, if you think of like how DYDX works, essentially what you do is you transfer USDC into the protocol and that effectively serves as your collateral for you to then take these synthetic positions on, you know, Bitcoin or, or Ether or whatever it might be. And on layer one, basically because of these limitations that we've been talking about, we had to peg that collateral to just one type of asset. So you would essentially go ahead and deposit USDC and you would take a position on Bitcoin or take a position on Ether, but you had to deposit it for that specific asset. Now we can deposit USDC and you could take a position on Bitcoin and Ether using the same USDC as collateral in a way that you couldn't do before. Those are like two kind of high level examples of, you know, I think some of the benefits that we get. I mean, the most obvious one that I skipped over is just fees, right? I think for the last you know, six months, fees have been extremely high. I think when we implemented you know, Starkware, basically you're dividing those fees in a significant way because of those batches. So those are kind of some of the benefits that we've seen. And I think the users have made it like very clear that their experience on layer two is significantly better. Now, the restrictions that we get as of right now is mostly composability. And composability is not really an important thing for DYDX, but it is for some other protocols. And to like back up, composability refers to this, and some people refer to it as money Legos, right? It's this idea of protocols being able to plug in together. And this idea that you, know, you basically are transacting on one protocol, and it's actually bringing you into protocol two, three, and four at the same time. And we've had that on Ethereum in DeFi. And frankly, it's one of the most powerful things about DeFi. When you get to layer two solutions as they are right now, they're all fragmented, right? And I think there was some hope a few months ago that we would see everyone you know, congregate on the same chain, but you know, you know, right? You see DYDX that's on you know, Starkware, you see you know, Aave on Polygon, Uniswap originally saying we're going to be on Optimism and looks like maybe Arbitrum as well. Synthetics is on, on Optimism. So you've basically got this fracturing. And so the question is, how are you going to bring that composability back together on layer two? Or frankly, does it give an opportunity for other layer ones to potentially now be able to step in and say, hey, you want composability? Come explore you know, our layer one solution like Solana, where you can get that with the same transactions per second that you can get on a layer two on Ethereum. Afraid of missing out on the latest crypto opportunities? Well, then it's time to head on over to PumaPay.io. PumaPay's first liquidity pool is now live on PancakeSwap. Deposit liquidity today and claim your share of a 750 million PMA token reward. Hurry now. Visit PumaPay.io today. 
That's pumapay.io. I'd like to follow up a little bit more, um, actually, you know, for, for both of you, because what you're describing there a little bit, Mark, is a classic problem, right? Where there's never any perfect solution. You've got one issue you need to resolve and you resolve it, but then of course now it raises these other ones. Where does the happy medium end up here? Like, you know, as you said, composability seems to me to be really important because at the outset, I was, as I said, it's part of this whole permissionless structure build anything and there's just new ideas being created on top of that. It's one of the things that makes it exciting. It's the same thing we, we see in the rest of the blockchain world. You can create efficiency, but you have to give away some of the benefits of decentralization and getting that efficiency. Is there a happy medium? Because bringing in a layer one that suddenly has more transaction throughput mean that you have to bring in a centralized layer one, right? So, Rebecca? So first of all, I think that's true of any type of trade-off or anything in the financial world, legacy or DeFi, is that there are going to be trade-offs. I think the benefits of DeFi are so great. To Mark's point, though, I think that you're going to have this fracturing. I mean, even our protocol is a good example of this. It's not like we've taken the entire protocol and you can only you know, have transactions uh, with Aave through Polygon. You can still interact with the Aave protocol through Ethereum. And so I think at least for a while, there may be something like that while everybody figures out what to do next. But I don't think you're going to get away from having multiple layer two solutions out there. I mean, the layer two solutions may be the big winners in all of this, because I think to ensure the composability, you may need to be integrated with a couple of layer twos at a time, depending on how you do it. I mean, I don't know if DYDX could even do it if you have Starkware, because it, I think it just works a little differently than other layer twos. But I, mean, I think the optimal level of decentralization is a question that depends on who you're asking and what your use case is, right? Go ask Bitcoiners what the optimal level of decentralization is, and the answer is <laughs> Bitcoin and nothing else, right? <laughs> And, and then go ask Solana people and they're going to have a different view and go ask EOS people and they're going to have an even different view. So I don't think there's a right answer, but I do think if we look at like, what are the benefits of decentralization, you can get to an answer, right? And so permissionless, I think is one part of them. But I'd say like when it comes to decentralization, maybe the most important one is censorship resistant. It's like if you have five people that are validating you know, transactions, well, the government and anyone else can do something about that. If you've got 10,000, it's a lot more difficult. And so the question is like, what is the optimal level at that point? And you know, I think the, the answer is probably depends on, again, what you're doing. I think if you look at Solana, I think you're around like 100 validators or so. And if the answer is you're just doing spot trades on, you know, of crypto, you know, the level of censorship resistance probably doesn't need to be significantly more than that. I think that if you're bringing in use cases that could be challenged by the government in more meaningful ways, I think that maybe you do want something that has a level of decentralization that makes it such that coordination globally across governments would need to be something that's never been done before for them to actually be able to, to bring that down or censor any transaction. That is really what it comes down to is, you know, how do we prevent censorship resistance for a particular use case? So Mark, that couldn't be a better seg into the next topic we're going to cover, which is really regulation. And so some people see any form of regulation as censorship. They basically think of those terms as synonymous. There are some who think that any form of you know, KYC, AML, CTF kind of activity in and of itself is highly problematic. I think you, you know, we, we know this is different based on different parts of our community, and there are different views across the entire crypto ecosystem about 
to what extent there should be conformity or any regulation whatsoever, and to what extent this should be an, a space that is totally devoid of regulation and kind of really able to operate uh, in its own silo, at least for the time being, while innovation is so high. I certainly think that the direction of travel is that there is attention being paid, as Michael noted up at the top of, of the show, to this space. It certainly is getting pulled into the broader examinations around everything from central bank digital currencies to stable coins. Uh, to kind of the SATF, you know, uh, stuff that's happening, which I know, Rebecca, you've been involved with talking about, you know, all kinds of things that are going on in the space around the regulation of transactions, financial transactions as a general matter. You know, I'd love to hear from both of you about what you see as direction of travel kind of real time. But really, I want to go a little more deep than that and talk about, you know, what is the prospect of regulation here? Is there even a way to regulate this space without killing what makes it so interesting and exciting? And do you even think that's possible? Technology on its own should just not be regulated. I think that there is this spectrum of decentralization and there are touch points where software developers may be touching the protocol or involve the protocol more than others or other types of software more than others. And so where you actually have a true intermediary, the way the regulations contemplated it, then you need to think about whether they apply or not. But the first step is really are you an intermediary in the way that the regulations have contemplated? I know Mark and I have talked about this extensively, and I think we talked about this in the past mm-hmm. year too, but the regulations are written for people or persons, and persons are natural persons or some form of entity. So that's how the regulations were written. If you do not have somebody who falls under the definition of persons, I think it's very hard to then figure out how to apply those regulations. And you know, I think it's up for debate whether those regulations should apply at all. Do I think that there should be a standard of being a good actor in the space and thinking about the purpose behind the regulations as you are going ahead and building software? Yes. But to go back to this benefits of DeFi that Michael was talking about earlier, the way the software and blockchain in general has developed, it does meet a lot of the purposes of what the regulations are trying to accomplished. So something like transparency in transactions, right? So that a bank has all the information and you'd have to go to your bank to get more information about other transactions other than your own bank account. That doesn't exist in blockchain. There is immense transparency. You can see all the transactions mostly in real time as they're coming through. So that's very important. No information asymmetry. This goes to the transparency point, right? is a way to protect investors or users or participants in financial transactions. You have that as well here. The composability, Michael talked about, that things can plug into each other and the transparency underlies all of that. And I think the automaticity of the software too is something that alleviates a lot of the issues with financial intermediaries, which is you have somebody else that you have to trust. Do you trust your bank? Do you trust whoever the custodian is for whatever assets they're holding? Sure, there are people with subjective intent and you can't always rely on people being good actors, which is why you need regulation. But when you have automatic transactions that happen on smart contracts, if X, then Y, so X happens and Y happens, and you can trust just the software itself, then you may not need the regulations in the same way. That being said, I don't believe, first of all, that we are a regulation-less ecosystem for the time being. Something I talked about with FATF extensively is that DeFi is still a closed system. We live in a fiat-dominated world. And so it's very hard to get into or out of DeFi without having, you know, exchanging crypto to fiat and vice versa. And that can only really be done 
for the most part through a regulated third party intermediary, like an exchange or some sort of OTC desk or something like that. And they all perform KYC AML. So you do have this closed system where there are entities being checked before they come into the system. So. Yeah, and we've spoken on this show, long-time listeners will recall, about these on-ramps and off-ramps and right, and how there is a different world that applies to you when you're in your kind of t- traditional fiat centralized sort of system and nothing about that has really changed. And there's these ways that you can enter and exit the crypto ecosystem, let's call it. Now, it's obviously not as simple as that. But there are these moments where you do kind of enter or exit at which a lot of the sort of ordinary rules of engagement apply. But I'm going to hear broadly generalized because I think that regulation in this space anyway, tends to stem from two primary motivators. One is, you know, criminals, bad guys. We don't want to let bad guys exchange value in any way because they can do bad things. And isn't that horrible? So leaving aside the fact that, you know, crime is differently defined in different jurisdictions, I think there is a general sense that some of the KYC AML is handled to some extent, at least now in the DeFi space, through these on-ramps and off-ramps. There is still this kind of exchange or exchange points that are happening where you can kind of spot this sort of activity, let's just say. The other motivation, I think, is consumer protection. This idea that should we even allow people who aren't quote unquote sophisticated to be you know, participating in some of these systems? And so you kind of saw this come up, again, long-time listeners will call in our discussions around you know, GameStop, Doge, like things like this. Like, Is there an obligation? Is this is where notices come into play? Should you have a minimum uh, net worth or value or you know, credit be an credit investor or whatever it might be? So there's this sense of how I think regulators want to port some of those concepts over into things like DeFi. Now, I think that we have to really fundamentally rethink who we're calling a consumer. It's really more a user and under our sort of format. Mm-hmm. What are we protecting them from? What are the trade-offs? What are we not enabling them to access? So I'd be really curious, Mark, to hear from you on that topic, because certainly decentralized exchanges are an area where some of this is, uh, is important conversation. So what is your sense, generally speaking, of consumer protection regulation as a general matter? Does it apply? Does do parts of it port here? Or is it just kind of it really just doesn't fit. I, I think as currently constructed, I think Rebecca put it pretty well in terms of like, does it fit? And the answer is like, when you have an intermediary, it might fit pretty well, right? And so when we look, for example, at you know money transmission, for example, right? And, and the answer is like, generally you're focused on, is there a custodian or some kind of custodial nature to the transaction? The answer is when you do, you need to trust somebody and there is a consumer protection piece to that where a consumer might be harmed if there is no regulation. When you have peer-to-peer transactions and a software protocol and the company behind it does not actually have access to the transactions and specifically to the funds, it's part of those transactions. What are you looking to regulate from a money transmission you know, at that point perspective? And the answer is no longer consumer protection. At that point, it's simply information. Right. And then when you look at the information piece, you go, okay, but then what information do you want? Because the answer is like, I have the same information as you have in a transaction that happened on chain. And so you look at that and you just kind of walk through and you go, well, wait, what, what would we be trying to regulate and what information do we want? And the answer is something that has no risk of harming somebody. And then you've got a piece of information that's already out there. So then you go, okay, well, then in what situation should there be regulations that apply? And, and the answer is, where you've inserted some kind of intermediary, right? So when you have an admin key that allows you to take the funds out of a smart contract, it's like, great, this is non-custodial and all, except the, some small group of people can go ahead and decide that they want to withdraw funds from that smart contract. 
That's the kind of nuance that regulators, I think, haven't reached yet and, and need to reach because that's the kind of activity that should be regulated. And I think we've seen that, right? Like FinCEN has talked about like multi-six and, and what that looks like. And if you've got total independent control, then you're deemed to kind of be a money services business and should be registered. But we really haven't seen much kind of enforcement activity on that side where, frankly, we know that that's happening, right? Where, where people do actually have you know, control over these types of things. That's kind of where we think about the consumer protection. And another piece of it really is disclosure, right? All of these protocols are transparent because all of the information is on chain. Developers should be trying their best to kind of make it easier for users to be able to know what that information is. I don't think they have an obligation to do it. I think the answer is like, it's on chain and it can be done. And third parties can make that information available. But I think if you're really kind of thinking through like, okay, well, how is it that we're going to reduce everybody's risk in a transaction? The answer is like, okay, well, then let's show users what the current interest rate is in this pool, for example, so that you know, they know what it is and can expect it. And I think that if you have a UI that is showing a interest rate that is wildly off from what you actually receive... Well, that's probably something that is problematic and consumers deserve to be protected. Now, there's a very big difference between a software bug that results in that and like intentional <laughs> misrepresentation of information. But those are the kind of things that, again, regulators just haven't kind of figured out. And I think part of the reason for this is like when we go back to like, can you regulate this space and how should you do it? You need to like break it into three pieces. Do you regulate software development? Okay. And the answer is like almost everybody in the world is going to say, no, we're not going to regulate mm -hmm. software development. Then you get to the question of, do we regulate deployment of software? There's like an affirmative action that needs to be taken. Do you regulate that? And then the third part is, okay, now you have software that's out there. How do you regulate it? And what I would say is that right now, what everyone is doing is trying to regulate like existing software and frankly, it's impossible to regulate a piece of automated software that lives on Ethereum unless you plan on taking down Ethereum. In my view, like unless Congress acts in a way that materially changes laws, regulators are always going to be catching up trying to turn off fires that frankly, they can't actually fully turn off. And if they go ahead on the other end of that and say, okay, we're going to regulate developers, which you know, I think there are constitutional issues with that, but let's just assume that they tried you now have this issue of somebody writing code from anywhere in the world and being able to deploy that in a way that is accessible anywhere in the world. So unless governments start coordinating in ways that they've never been able to do, and I don't mean governments don't coordinate, I've been, I mean, they don't coordinate well or quickly, you're in a world where there's going to be a lot of chasing going on. And I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. I, mean, I just couldn't agree with you more. Part of what I think we all know is really needed here, and which I think the community is doing a reasonable job at, is education. A lot of education happening by a lot of people. You know, certainly SADF is getting more and more and better and better informed and is aware of kind of who to go to and how to talk about these things. And I want to talk a little bit about governance. Recently, Uniswap Governance, essentially a proposal came through about the creation of a new organization that might help support education around regulation and of regulators. Uh, first, maybe one of you can kind of walk through, how does that work in governance? Like, let's use this example specifically, like what has to happen? Why was it the case that you know, Harvard Law School wound up kind of getting involved with this? Like maybe you can, someone can talk through that process and how that happened uh, and why that's important and why it's indicative of how governance works and of the decentralized nature of how these things function. 
and then um, kind of speak to like, what are your views on the need for that kind of organization? And do you think that there is an opportunity to really do some education now to your point, Mark, about even drawing those three distinctions, right? Like where is this software in its development and deployment, et cetera? Like how do we kind of make that clear and what that means in the context of where to specifically? As we sort of talked about a little bit with respect to the Aave protocol, Uniswap, the protocol is also controlled by Uniswap governance and the group of uni token holders who are able to make proposals and then vote on those proposals to do a number of different things. One, to obviously change, upgrade, amend the protocol itself, but also there is a treasury which Uniswap governance controls or uni holders control, which has a significant amount of uni in it, which has great value, and how that uni gets used and deployed. So the Harvard Blockchain Group put together at first a temperature check and then a full proposal to see if the community, the uni community, would be interested in using some of the funds from the treasury to form a new 501c4, which is a nonprofit that is allowed to do lobbying and educational work and things like that, and allocates a certain amount of uni in order to fund this 501c4 uh, and make it so that a number of people could go out, as you said, and do education. As far as my views on it, I think it's very necessary. I think that it will not stand alone in terms of support. I do think other treasuries or, you know, other community governance, so Ave governance or compound governance or a number of different types of governance could end up voting or making proposals to use part of their treasury to help fund this 501c4. I don't see it staying uh, a Uniswap only funded organization to start. Just principally, I think it is extremely necessary. Mark and I were in private practice together as of, you know, five, six months ago. And one of the things we did was go out and educate regulators. The education of regulators and policymakers has been happening for a while. But given the extreme interest that's really ratcheted up since DeFi summer, but, you know, DeFi summer hasn't really, really calmed down, notwithstanding sort of the dips in crypto we've seen over the past few months, there is new focus on it or continued focus on it. And so there has been some controversy over the proposal itself in that there's not enough detail as to how the funds are going to be used and what they're going to be used for. But I think that can all be flushed out. And I think that the intention behind it to ensure that this ecosystem can continue to grow and honestly, that we can talk to policymakers and regulators about the things we're talking about today, right? Mark's three points and how to think about the spectrum of decentralization and this is a whole new world and let's not use an old system to regulate a new world are all things that are really necessary because one of the points I wanted to make when we went back to, you know, protecting users and should there be these thresholds for people to start getting involved in DeFi, the flip side of that is that there aren't these thresholds and there aren't these huge hurdles that legacy finance has already posed. You need an ID to be able to participate in legacy finance. You need to give your name. You need to give a certain a need to have certain types of information. DeFi doesn't demand that. And so it's a pretty nascent space, right? It's only a few years old, notwithstanding the you know billions of dollars of total value locked in all these DeFi protocols. But it does have a lot of promise to bring financial autonomy and financial independence to a lot of disenfranchised people who've never had that opportunity before. I think that that a fund like this that really is focused on education 
and with a lot of people who are motivated to ensure that that is what happens, will really benefit a broader spectrum of people long term. Yeah, I always feel I need to remind you know people, especially on Twitter, that there are in fact relevant regulators outside the United States. That is actually a fact. So, Mark, some of our listeners are more familiar with kind of you know shareholders and how shares work and this kind of thing. And so, how does this differ? You know, maybe you can talk us a little bit through the temperature check, the proposal, like what it means to be part of this community and these kinds of proposals or, or temperature checks forward versus what that looks like in a kind of more traditional uh, shareholder context. Yeah. So if you take a typical corporation, right, you've got shareholders and the shareholders will go ahead and vote for a board of directors, right? And that board of directors is going to be a group of, I don't know, usually seven to I don't know, 15 people. And then that board of directors is basically going to be in charge of determining strategy and kind of overall management of the company, just direction. That board is then going to be the one who elects kind of officers who actually implement that strategy on a day-to-day basis. And that's like your typical corporate structure that we've lived with for a very long time now. If you move this over to kind of how we think about token-based governance, you've got a flatter hierarchy, right? So you've got token holders that basically have direct access to actually implement the changes that need to be implemented in the technology, which frankly, is the same thing as right, the company. The technology is the entire company to the extent there was one. Right, It's like, that's all there is. And so they get to go ahead and actually implement direct changes as if they were officers, except they also get the benefit that you get as a shareholder, and they get to make the strategic decisions of a board of directors. And so they're essentially all of it. And so then you get say, okay, well, then how do you coordinate all of that? Because why is it that corporations don't just act through their shareholders? I'd say there's a couple pieces to this. One has to do with just culture, right? So if you approach a typical organization from a cultural perspective, a shareholder sits there and thinks, I give my money in a passive way and I do not do anything. And then the board says, I make decisions in a semi-passive way and I don't do anything. And you officers go ahead and do active things. When you have token holders, their thought process is completely different. The question is, how do we all add value to the protocol? That doesn't mean that there's not token holders that sit there and do nothing. That's always going to exist. But what you've got is people who are going to say, okay, so I have technical knowledge. So I'm going to go ahead and actually make technical changes to the protocol. And I'll get to like how that would be implemented. But then you've got all these token holders that say, I'm going to add value by educating users as to how to use this. And I'm going to add value by making you know, marketing videos. And so you've got essentially this flat organization where all token holders are actually acting on behalf of the protocol. The actual changes that are made to the protocol itself, that actually goes through kind of a voting process that is different from a corporation in terms of how it's actually implemented. And that a token holder will go ahead and make a proposal. And, and I should say, like, governance across different protocols works differently. There's no like uniform kind of way of doing it. I think Compound put out the first like governance system as a whole in terms of how it works as a technical matter, but the coordination is different across all of them. And so if you take Uniswap as an example, what they've implemented is this idea of like a temperature check. And so somebody who wants to make a proposal will go ahead and say, I believe that we should do you know, X, Y, Z. And they'll write up a proposal that is posted online. And the idea there is that you will take a vote that is off-chain that basically says, hey, do you agree with this or do you not? Right? And if token holders generally agree with it, 
then you go ahead to a consensus check, which is essentially, let's actually check that we have consensus before we do this online, like with the proper votes that we need to actually implement this before we actually have it go online. And so you'll have that consensus check that will actually happen. Then you go ahead and you make the kind of full proposal that gets implemented into the protocol. And when it gets approved, it actually affects the transaction itself. So you don't have a party that then goes ahead and says, oh, you want us to do this, let's do it. That proposal, when it gets approved, automatically gets implemented. I believe Uniswap has like a two-day delay on its actual implementation. All of them are different. And so that's how that governance works in a very different, flatter way where you've got more people acting together in a coordinated manner. So one really bad you know, way to think about this, somewhat works as a metaphor, is to think about a bill going through committee, right? So when you think about how a bill becomes law in Congress, there are usually these committees, the committees do refinement, the broad congressional body has access to what's in that content. They're often doing you know, private conversations about this and kind of thing. So there's these stages, and that usually is what happens in governance, where a proposal is kind of taken through. Now, to Mark's point, you know, this differs. So it's important to note that like every protocol has a different way that they run governance, and governance happens, uh, the ways of proposals, you know, the different stages that might exist. Some really collapse a lot of that, but to some extent, when something is considered, either it's going to be a lot of uh, the value is going to be put into some sort of direction or some new initiative, or there's some potential controversy around some direction there are these sorts of checks that come through. And I think about it a bit like a bill going through committee and getting refined and you're checking to see, do you have support before you kind of take it to a full vote? Because there's not really much point if you're not going to have the support at the time it gets to the floor. So there's a way of thinking about it like that, that I think is helpful in terms of what the process tends to be around some of these proposals that come through. I think what you guys are talking about is just fascinating stuff. Much of this conversation is about, is about DAOs, you know, decentralized autonomous organizations and DeFi is the environment which DAOs have suddenly become something very real. But Mark, your description of that solution where you've got an off-chain human conversation then lays its way down into the technology, to me, speaks to this constant sort of effort to figure out how do we bring humans and technology into a way that they can actually effectively get the benefits of that decentralized consensus, but also recognize that, well, humans are humans and they have to be able to talk to each other. But in light of that, something else that you said really struck me, and that is that at the end of the day, the technology is the company, which is a really interesting statement that still brings us back to this point. We were talking before about regulators, what can they regulate, what they can't they regulate. But another way to think about it is like, what can we focus on as the risk center? And it seems to me that the real core risk in DeFi has shifted. We were all looking at this thing when it first came out, and there was this worry about excessive collateralization and, and rehypothecation and like people are taking 100x leverage and then taking that to then take another 100x leverage on something else. And they're like, oh my God, this is looking like CDOs and the, and the collapse of the financial system. It was all about to happen. And the DeFi industry has had a bit of an interesting test in the past month because the markets have collapsed. In, in, well, there's been a very, very big correction, put it that way, in both the price of Ether and the price of Bitcoin. DeFi seems to have sailed through pretty well, given that test. That real systemic risk thing, at least in this context, hasn't played out, maybe because these collateral systems are really very good at executing. However, sorry, roundabout way of getting back to this point about the technology being the company, it seems to me that the core problem is still, where are the bugs? How are you going to find that bug? And if there's a bug somewhere in there, what happens to it? 
And what is the process for us doing this? It strikes me if you can't regulate it to your point that we can't get Congress is going to rewrite its laws to even regulate this stuff. Where is the self-regulation? What is the mechanism by which, whether it's insurance programs or, or bug bounties or some sort of process by which we know that sitting inside this system is not some doomsday machine that might just suddenly blow up on us? We have to wrap up for this. I'm just going to throw that one question to both of you. To you first, Rebecca, are we safe? And how do we know that we are safe? I think we are safe, but I think you should, and all users of DeFi should demand the transparency from the software developers who developed and deployed the protocol to ensure they're safe. So two things that I can give that are example with respect to Aave is we've had, I think, six or seven security audits, V2 of the protocol, and they are all posted publicly online. All protocols should do that. They should post at least certain of their security audits before or at the same time that the protocol is deployed. I think we've heard about in the past where hacks happened, the protocol or project has come out and said, oh, well, we did a security audit. And then the security audit team will come back and say, yeah, but you didn't implement anything we told you. So there really needs to be transparency around security audits. I think most well-respected software developers in this space are giving that transparency with respect to security audits. And as for insurance, one, there are these native insurance solutions that are coming up. And we have developed a separate protocol called the safety module, which allows for staking of Aave uh, and ultimately is intended to be a partial risk mitigation mechanism in the event that there is some sort of unforeseen shortfall event. And so you can have 30% of your funds that you've deposited into the safety module to be used to compensate in a shortfall event. And then there are a number of different types of ecosystem collectors or reserve funds for a lot of these protocols that allow for funds to be possibly used if governance votes for it in the case of a shortfall event. But baseline, there's also a huge movement behind the scenes to sort of have self-regulation and set industry standards. And so that is going on as well. Mark, any thoughts? Yeah, I think one of the biggest things that has held back kind of any protective measures have been like non-guarded launches, right? It's launches of protocols that, you know, very quickly have tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars in them. The problem with that is that one powerful tool is bug bounties. And bug bounties aren't very powerful anymore when you've got hundreds of millions of dollars at risk that somebody can potentially steal or a portion of which they can steal. Because nobody can have a bug bounty that is big enough to cover that potential loss. Mm -hmm. So I, I'd say like one of the biggest things is this idea of guarded launches. I think Rebecca covered uh, a lot of the rest in terms of uh, insurance solutions that I put out there. But ultimately what I'd come back to is Bitcoin, right? In the early days of Bitcoin, in the early days of any software, you have bugs and Bitcoin, thankfully, was very silent for a long period of time. There wasn't much attention on it. And developers could focus on it and fix little bugs that came up you know, here and there. I think the best way to replicate that is through guarded launches. So when DYDX, we launched our Layer 2 protocol, we had an alpha for either three weeks or a month, during which we had very few users on there and very few dollars in the protocol. And that allowed us to fix you know, bugs that come up because there's bugs in every single bit of software. I'd say the best thing is, is these guarded launches, but followed by an understanding from users that 
software is software. And it's only with years of being tested that you trust it more and more, right? Like you go back years, like trusting Bitcoin as like an alternative to anything, you know, back in 2010 would have been crazy. Notwithstanding how it played out, like trusting a new DeFi protocol, a piece of software in the same way as you trust Bitcoin now is frankly just irresponsible as a user. And so there's a level of understanding of this is new and it needs to be worked through. And I think protocol developers should let people know this is new and it's something that can have bugs. And I think many of them do. And, and that's really kind of the only thing that you can do when you're dealing with autonomous software. Disclosure and transparency. Mark is wrapping up uh, basically our whole theme in that last sentence. I just want to quickly define bug bounties for some of our listeners who may not know what they are. Uh, basically, they're just a pretty standard way for software developers or organizations to catch bugs. And so they basically offer a reward. Um, sometimes it's usually compensation. It can be you know, recognition sometimes. And you kind of go in as a developer, almost like as a, in an audit function and try to find bugs and report them essentially. And so governments use this, departments of defense use this, the Pentagon uses this. So it's a pretty standard way of doing this kind of thing and trying to make sure that you are providing a access. It helps with, I think, credibility sometimes as well, because you're giving access to um, some outside developers to get into your code a little bit and figure out what's going on in there. But also it enables you to catch things that maybe your own, you know, heads down blinders on wouldn't enable you to catch. But to Mark's point, they don't necessarily make sense in this context, which I think is a really important one. It's probably a good place for us to wrap because, you know, the reference to Bitcoin that Mark made is an interesting one. You had that period where nobody even really kind of knew it existed other than a small group of developers. And it is easier to develop in that environment. You know, one of the benefits, I think, of the so-called crypto winter after the ICO bubbles, it suddenly took the world's attention off crypto. And a lot of the wonderfully new advanced phases of this space were developed at the time, including all of these DeFi protocols. So the question is now, like, you know, now that the price is falling, are we into crypto winter too? Does it give us a chance to do this? That could be one rather pessimistic way of describing it. Or, or rather, I think the one that you guys have both been addressing here, which is the world's attention is on this. There is a lot of money at stake. What are the human slash legal slash software solutions that can be built to integrate off-chain, on-chain governance and bring these things to market in the safest and most responsible way? And you've both done a fabulous job walking it through this. This is complicated stuff. So... Really, really appreciate Rebecca Rettig from Mave and Matt Warren from uh, DYDX for your time. I think it was a fascinating discussion. Thank you very, very much. Much appreciated. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you both so much. That's all we have time for for now. Thank you so much for being with us. Make sure you come back next week for another episode of Money Reimagined, where we will dive deeper into DAO's governance and DeFi. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Rebecca Reddick, and, and Mark Boyrin. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited and produced by Michelle Musso with production support and announcing by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>